You know, all of us probably have a uh, working definition of love in our minds. Love is one of those words where we just kind of instinctively have a pretty good understanding. We think we know what it means. We read novels about love. We watch movies about love. We follow social media accounts about love. A, A quick search of Spotify reveals that we sing a lot about love. The Beatles say that all we need is love. Burt Bacharach says what the world needs now is love. There are a lot of songs and a lot of artists that claim to have a a pretty good handle on what love is. Adele says that love is a game. Anna from Frozen says that love is an open door. Sublime says love is what I got. Pat Benatar says love is a battlefield. John Mayer says love is a verb. John Paul Young says love is in the air. Frank Sinatra says love is here to stay. Kesha says your love is my drug. And then Toto reminds us that love isn't always on time. If there's one thing marriage has taught me, that is true. But there are other artists who are a bit confused. They're not really sure what love is. The Black Eyed Peas ask, where is the love? White Snake asks, is this love? Van Halen asks, why can't this be love? Foreigner says, I want to know what love is. But perhaps Hathaway sums it up best when he simply asks, what is love? See, love is part of what it means to be human. No matter what culture you live in, most people would say they know something about love. It's one thing to talk about love. It's a whole nother thing to love someone or to be loved by someone. Love is hard. We know this. If you don't, you will soon. Love sometimes hurts. Love sometimes disappoints. And often we simply fail to love. What what do we do instead? We respond cynically. We approach life with this rigid rationality rather than risk being burned again by love. Or what we do is we redefine love to try to make it more manageable. We'll say things like, don't do to others what you would not have them do to you. We say that's love. We say love is all about actions. My family knows I love them. We say as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, then then why does it matter what I do with my life? I wonder how you would define love. You see, the issue is we live in a world that is obsessed with love while while being deeply confused by it. And this affects our marriages. It affects our dating relationships. It affects our friendships, every relationship. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at modern love and how to navigate relationships in the 21st century world. Next week, we're going to specifically look at our personal relationships, marriages and dating. But we can't start there. That cannot be the place that we start. We can't start talking about how to love your husband or your wife if we don't really know what love is in the first place. See, we have to start with the foundational truth that God is love. This is the foundation, this this is the building block from everything else that we talk about love starts from this premise, this understanding that God is love. 
The fact that God is love means that we have been embraced by a personal God and we are able to live under his protective care now and forevermore. Now, if I were to ask how many of you believe this, I would guess that just about every hand would go up. Yet there's a huge difference between affirming a truth like God is love with our minds and then teaching our heart to live out of this truth. It's been said that the longest distance in the world is that one foot between our head and our heart. The emotion that most impedes our experience of the love that God has poured out in our hearts is not hate, it's fear. You see, fear hinders our experience of God's love. You see, for for me personally, I grew up as, as a fearful kid. And this really kind of manifested itself in, in, in those middle school years. Now, I know that, that middle school is, is tough for, for just about everyone. But I didn't realize it at the time. If you would have asked me, are you scared? Or, are you fearful? I would have said, absolutely not. I would have laughed at the question. But looking back, I can realize that I, I feared failure in, in many different areas. Whether it was failing academically or failing athletically or just maintaining and holding on to friends. I was anxious to the point of worrying myself sick. Now, fortunately, it was probably these very same circumstances that made me open to the message of the good news that God loved me fervently and fully. I discovered this truth at a youth summer camp in seventh grade, and I had an overwhelming encounter with this God of love. But for whatever reason, I wasn't able to to live into this truth. Throughout my teenage years and into my adult years, I I battled with this tension, these these knots in my stomach. I I often sensed a wall of defensiveness between myself and and, and my environment that said, this world is, is not a safe place to be. When I encountered leaders and authority figures, people that I admired and looked up to and and people I wanted to impress, I felt self-conscious and frankly, I felt inferior and unworthy to be in their presence. And the intensity of these feelings of fear and anxiety would rise and they would fall over the years, but would never be completely overcome by the love of God. So finally, as I entered into my 30s, life circumstances conspired to make my future in ministry feel like it was very much up in the air. No matter how hard I tried to to get to a place of confidence that God had my well-being firmly in his hand and under control, I could not get my heart to believe it. As much as I consciously pondered and, and, and meditated on and read the scriptures about God's love for me, my heart told me that I didn't believe it. You see, fear was blocking my experience of the love of God. I know the narrative that runs through our spirits is often some sort of fear that overrides God's love for us. For for some of you, you were raised in a home where God was used to keep you in line. God's going to get you if you misbehave. And fear was used as a tool for discipline. It embeds itself in our spirit, and and it's projected upon God. And so God becomes to us like Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. 
Is that the kind of God that lurks in your narrative? Some of you were raised in environments where the ones that you expected to protect you, they either weren't there when you needed them, or even worse, they abused you. Emotionally, physically, even sexually. Maybe, maybe you felt unsafe your entire life and and you've had a difficult time believing that at the very center of your being, that not only does God have your best interest at heart, but he can and he will actually bring that about. That there are others of you who are carrying a bag of guilt and shame because you've done things and and you violated and betrayed the standards that, that you thought that you held dear. Underneath that guilt, underneath that shame, is the fear of punishment. It's what Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. They lived in this perfect paradise, but but they ate of the forbidden fruit, and what happened? They felt shame, and so they hid. Listen, fear is the greatest impediment to the love of God. 1 John says that perfect love casts out all fear. So how can we come to experience the inviting love that God provides us the safest place in all the world to be? Today, I want to zero in on one verse that takes us right to the center of the heart of God's love for us. It's a verse that's the greatest assault on the fear that tries to separate us from God. The verse is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But I want to read the surrounding verses to provide some context. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to begin reading in Romans chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. I want to zero in on verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we can move the reality of this verse from our head to our hearts, we will be living out the greatest truth that there is. God is for us. God for us drives out fear in us. So I want to look at this verse, a phrase at a time, and then draw some inferences from Paul's insight. The verse begins with, but God. But God is the gospel in a nutshell. It's the great reversal. But God contains the entirety of the good news. Just when we were expecting God to drop the hammer on us, on undeserving sinners, he interrupts us with his grace. 
With God, it is not a natural therefore, but a miraculous nevertheless. It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes home after squandering his his inheritance. He depletes his family's resources. He's essentially said, Father, I wish you were dead. Now go ahead and give me my inheritance ahead of time. But when things don't work out for him, he comes back home with his tail between his legs and he's preparing to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He certainly thought that his father was going to drop the hammer on him. Yet we read in Luke 15 verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. In the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays out his indictment against the sinfulness of humanity before a holy God. And if you were to only read through verse 3, you would think that it was all over for humanity. The game's up. We're done for. Let me rewrite this section with with a bit of a liturgical twist. Listen to this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You followed the ways of the world, but God. You gratified the cravings of your sinful nature, but God. You followed its desires and thoughts, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul continues, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Where do we see the love of God demonstrated and put on public display? God's love is not a hidden love, written only in secret love notes and poems. Paul says that that God demonstrates, commends, expresses, he even proves his own love for us. So where do we look to see, without question, that there is a God who loves us? What's the verse say? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Christ died for us. The demonstration of God's love is the cross. And John's message is the same in 1 John 4. He says this is how God showed his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Author and speaker Brennan Manning tells a moving story that illustrates the cross as the expression of the love of God. The year was 1989, and he had just completed a weekend speaking engagement where he had wowed and impressed the crowds, but he felt empty inside compared to the kind of life that he was proposing to his audience. And so he decided to visit his adopted mother as he regularly did. To understand what this 87-year-old woman meant to Manning, we have to go back to Korea in 1952. At midnight, two best friends, Richard Manning, as Manning was known then, and Ray Brennan were side-by-side in a Korean foxhole, awaiting their orders. They were casually eating chocolate bars when a hand grenade landed next to Ray Brennan. Manning recalls that his friend casually tossed aside his candy wrapper, threw his body on the grenade, and winked lovingly at his friend before the grenade exploded under him. Eight years later, when it came time for Richard Manning to enter the Franciscan priesthood, he adopted a new name 
as was the custom at ordination. Because of the sacrifice of his best friend, he took the name Brennan as his first name. Thus he became Brennan Manning. He hoped that he could live as sacrificially as his friend had. Back to 1989. The woman Brennan Manning went to see after that speaking engagement was Mrs. Brennan, Ray's mom. Mrs. Brennan and Brennan Manning were reminiscing after dinner about the crazy things that Ray and Manning had done together, but Manning couldn't shake his depression. And so he asked his adopted mom, Ma, do you think that Ray loved me? Mrs. Brennan's first reaction was to laugh, thinking that, that Manning must be joking. Richie, you're, you're such a kidder, she said. You're always messing around, always fooling around. You say the craziest things. You, you should be serious. Manning said, I, I am serious. Then Brennan Manning said that he saw anger in her eyes. Mrs. Brennan said, don't you ever talk to me like that again. Don't you ever talk about my Raymond like that. Stop making fun of me. And then she exploded. What more could he have done for you? What more could he have done for you? Her explosion then turned to a quiet understanding. It's all right, Richie. We all need a little reassurance from time to time. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love has no God than this, that he lay down his life for us. What more could he have done for you and me? So in Romans 5, 8, Paul ratchets up the cost even more. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says it's one thing perhaps to, to die for a friend or for a good person, as rare as that may be, but no one dies for their enemies. But while we were in a state of sin, mortal enemies of God, Christ died for us. When we didn't care one bit that there was a God in heaven, he decided to give his life for us. When we were in full rebellion against the authority of God, when we were asserting our independence from him, that's when God demonstrated his love for us. So unusual is this love that the New Testament writers used a word for love that was relatively unknown. You see, every other kind of love is reliant on the worthiness of the recipient. There is eros, which is simply the love of attraction. There is storge, the, the love of family. There's philia or phileo, which is, which is brotherly love. But Paul chooses a word for love that would have been somewhat strange to the students of classical Greek, agape. This kind of love is not determined by the worthiness of the recipient, but by the nature of the donor. God loves us for the simple reason that he is a generous giver. The love of God is unconditional. It's unconditional. And I find this truth incredibly liberating. Look at it this way. 
God knew everything about you and me. He saw our capacity for selfishness. He knew ahead of time the callousness that exists in our hearts. He knew that we were capable of doing the unthinkable. He saw all of those thoughts that go through our minds about other people. In other words, there's never anything that we're going to discover about ourselves that God has not already taken into account. There's nothing that that we're going to come across as we uncover our inner darkness about which God is going to slap his forehead and say, oh, if, if only I would have known about that, I would have never given my life for you. No. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, this allows us to get to the root of some of the things that confound us because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Denial is simply our fear speaking. Because of this, I take exception with a theology that says in our sin we are scum. As much as I love the hymn, Amazing Grace, there's a part of me that winces when we sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now listen, surely we are capable of wretched things. But I believe the message of God's love for us is not that we were worthless wretches, but rather that we were unworthy. There is a big difference between being unworthy and being worthless. In fact, by Jesus' death on our behalf, God says that we are worth the life of his son. Scripture goes so far as to say that God has provided an eternal inheritance for himself, and it's us. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. You see, what God has given himself for all of eternity His prize and his treasure are the people that he has purchased with Christ's own blood. Unworthy? Yes. Worthless? No. J.I. Packer says that by Christ identifying himself with our welfare, God has conditioned his happiness upon ours. All of us as parents know that we cannot truly be free and happy until our children are safely home and their welfare secure. Uh, The way that Packer so eloquently states it is this way. He says, God will not know perfect and unmixed happiness until he has brought every one of us to heaven. He has in effect resolved that henceforth, for all eternity, his happiness shall also be conditional upon ours. Thus God saves not only for his glory, but also for his gladness. See, all that we have considered about the nature and the extent of the love of God is an assault on the fear that can block the presence of God's love in our hearts. If you look at a later section in 1 John 4, John goes right after the fear that robs us of the peace of God's love. He says in verses 16 through 18, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. As I mentioned earlier, as clear as the demonstration of God's love is, breaking through the anxiety that was riddling my life was my 
barrier to knowing it deeply. At the time of my deepest wrestling with anxiety, I was in a men's small group. And one of the guys in that group had a son who was a missionary in Syria and Iraq. And this was at the time when, when ISIS was at the height of its strength and power, and they were uh, carrying out um, targets on, on Christians and on churches. Now, his son was on furlough in the United States, but he was preparing to go back to the Middle East. And I was shocked that he would be walking back into such a dangerous environment. And so I asked a question that now looking back, I can see was simply a projection of my own fears. I asked him, is it safe to go back there? And he looked at me in my eyes, and he paused for a moment, and he tapped his chest, and he said, it is safe in here. I believed him. I knew that, that in that moment, he was experiencing something. His son was experiencing something. His son was experiencing something that was foreign to me. For me, it was not safe in here. My walk towards experiencing the love of God in a deeper, freer way involved me doing the hardest thing I've ever done. I had to admit as a pastor that I wasn't living in the reality of the peace and love and grace of God. My first step to connect my head with my heart was to go to a couple of close friends and admit to them that I was powerless over my own anxiety. Well, whatever image I felt I needed to project of having it all together needed to be shattered because it is so tiring to pretend. It was by admitting my need to others and their intercessory prayer for me that I faced this fear and I asked the Lord to touch me in those deepest places that I could not get to by myself. And I simply want to ask, what is that fear for you? Where is fear knocking on the door of your heart? For you, maybe it's the fear of aging. Maybe it's the fear of having to provide, of, of having to pay for that mortgage. Maybe it's the fear of the culture's influence on your children. Well, whatever that fear is, listen, we can find a safe place in here. There is something about vocalizing that fear, sharing it with others, externalizing them, and then inviting God to touch us in our deepest places that allows us to get to the place where we can say, it is safe in here. I'm compelled to conclude with a paragraph from J.I. Packer's chapter, The Love of God, from his classic book, Knowing God. I can't tell you how many times these words have been a comfort to me in the last several years. When the healing of my heart begun and my life started to unfold like a, a flower on a spring sunday, sunny day. I've put this passage in the first person so that we can apply the message of God's love to ourselves. Simply listen to this as we close. As a believer, I find in the cross of Christ assurance that I, as an individual, am beloved of God. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Knowing this, I am able to apply to myself the promise that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Not just some things, but all things. Every single thing that happens to me expresses God's love to me and comes to me for the furthering of God's purposes for me. Thus, so far as I am concerned, God is love to me. 
holy, omnipotent love at every moment and in every event of every day's life. Even when I cannot see the why and the wherefore of God's dealings, I know that there is love in and behind them. And so I can rejoice always, even when, humanly speaking, things are going wrong. I know that the true story of my life, when known, will prove to be, as the hymn says, mercy from first to last, and I am content. Today, I simply want you to experience the love of God that cast out all fear. Would you pray with me? God, you have loved us with a deep, hard to fathom, unconditional love. But God, I know for me and for so many of us, we listen to the fear that's knocking out at the door. And instead of of living out of the the love that, that we know intellectually, we struggle to believe that with our heart. So God, I pray that today, this morning, we would experience your love that cast out all fear. God, help us to identify what that fear is. To know it for what it is. To invite other people into our life to, to, to pray for us. And God, I pray that your love would fill our hearts. God, help us to experience your love. God, you are love. And we thank you for it. We thank you that you demonstrated your love in in the deepest, most sacrificial way possible by dying for us, by sending Christ to the cross even when we were so undeserving and unworthy. God, thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for desiring to be with us for all eternity. And God, if there is anybody here who's never experienced that saving love, I pray that today would be the day that they realize that you are a father who comes and embraces us and wraps your loving arms around us. We praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.